Welcome to the Aquinas Citizens Podcast, a place where students and others can share and debate their views whilst investigating all aspects of what it means to be more political. Welcome to this first proper episode of our Aquinas Citizens Podcast. This week we've got um, a range of students contributing. So we've got Daisy, Harvey and Will talking about some of the issues that are facing the UK and the US currently. Uh, after that, we're talking to Vicky, Charlotte and Phoebe about their experience of university life. They've all gone to study politics-related courses at university. And finally, I uh, shall be talking to Councillor George Jones about his studies and his political work since leaving Aquinas. Only left us last year, already an elected councillor. So thanks to George for making time. Hopefully you'll enjoy what they've all got to say. <laughs> As you'll hear in a moment, I met with Daisy, Will and Harvey to discuss UK and US politics. It's fair to say that the news has moved on a little since we spoke. Topics we covered, however, remain relevant, so I've left them in. To some extent, you can listen and make a judgment as to whether we were right or wrong about the conclusions we came to. Okay, we've gathered really to discuss some of the issues that are facing the UK and the United States so that um, we can think about how they might fit into the course that we study here at Aquinas College, the politics course at A-level, and also really about how the issues affect the governments of Britain and the United States more generally. Um, I'm joined by Will and by Harvey and by Daisy, who have all given of their time. They're all upper six students here at Aquinas, so they should know something about politics, and hopefully they'll be able to give us their experience and their expertise. We'll start with the UK. Um, obviously, the first year course on the A-level covers the United kingdom government and politics situation i thought the best issue perhaps to focus on just because it's so wide-ranging and there's so much to say is the uk government's response to the covid um crisis covid epidemic covid pandemic whatever you will um so i suppose first of all i guess it's just a question of how well we think the government has handled it how well the prime minister and the government have performed during this period so i guess daisy if you want to kick off please that would be a reasonable question. How well do you think the Prime Minister and the government have done in this time? So the first thing I would say is that obviously it is an incredibly difficult situation. Like nine months ago, nobody would have imagined that they like as a political leader that they would have had to handle a pandemic like this. So like kudos to the people who are doing it, because personally, I would be like completely stuck on what to do. But personally, I don't think that the UK government has handled the coronavirus pandemic well. Um, I think there's lots of things which they could have done better, they could have done quicker, and I think particularly now as we're potentially heading into a second wave, I don't think that the restrictions that are needed to stop a second wave or to limit the effect of one, I don't think they're being put in place. Um, And I think, unfortunately, that's going to result in more cases and more deaths. No, I mean, I read earlier that he's um, he's planning on restricting pubs and restaurants opening until 10. Um, they can't open after 10 p.m. But I, d- I don't personally think that's going far enough because it just honestly means that people are just going to stock up on food and drink earlier in the day and that if there's limited hours, that probably means it's just going to be busier for a shorter amount of time. Is your sense that... Daisy's got the right answer to that, that actually the government have handled certain aspects of this very badly and actually there's more to be done or, or do you think there's a different take to have? Um, I, I think, you know, they, they've taken the only approach that is viable for them to take as a government that is in this country at this period of time because, you know, you could theoretically 
say, here we have a virus that's going to kill off people who are over 70, who you know, is being paid for by the taxpayer through their pensions anyway. Or you could say, we're going to make sure that nobody dies through this um, outbreak, which was the approach that he could have taken in I don't know, January when it was in China. He could have closed the borders then, but he didn't. So the only approach that you could take without there being massive, you know, protests of the government, because, you know, realistically, there would be so little popular support for letting the virus rip through the population in, what was it, now, March? Yeah. Um, the, you know, he had to do, well, I'll say he, the government would have had to impose some restrictions. But I think the, the sort of middle of the road, are we trying to balance the economy and um, public health is, is, is it's very tricky, obviously. Uh, and I don't think it's something that's sustainable because I don't think you can save the economy and save public health. I think this is a situation where you have to pick one or the other. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, um, I mean, one of the difficulties in politics always is that counterfactuals don't work in your favour, do they? We obviously can't really prove what would have happened had we not done these things. And even these measures brought in today, we can't possibly say, I, mean, I think there's like 4,900 new COVID cases today just been announced. The uh, news alert just came through. Um, we can't say what that figure would have been had the lockdown in the northwest not been reimposed. We couldn't say necessarily how many more it would be. And equally, we won't know how many more it will be if we don't do the things that have been announced today. So it's it's very, very difficult in that sense. I wonder, Will, if you could give us a sense of how happy you are with the opposition response. Do you think the Labour Party and Keir Starmer um, and John Ashworth, I think, is the shadow health and social care for the Labour Party? Do you think they've handled things well? Do you think they've come out of this quite positively? Well, I think it's actually been a difficult situation. And um, Keir Starmer's come into this mid-leadership contest, just been elected as leader trying to make a good impression on the party. I think he's been constructive to the government, criticised when necessary, but then also supported them when they've made the right decisions. I think Keir Starmer at the moment is in a good position. The polls are looking quite positive with both parties at 40%. I think it's electorally advantaged Labour more than as a Tory party. Um, so, yeah, that's what I would say on it, to be fair. I, I honestly think... and. This isn't against Keir Starmer. Like, I became a Labour member so that I could vote for him in the election. I, I believe in his leadership and I think that he is a good leader of the Labour Party. But I think if Labour had won the election and they'd been in power and they'd had to deal with coronavirus, the Conservatives would have gone up in the polls and Labour would have gone down because you're looking at a situation where the government is effectively responsible for what is happening in the country. I mean, not to a wider effect, they didn't create coronavirus, but um, like they're responsible for the restrictions and the measures and any government, no matter what party, would have been blamed for that. So I don't think it's necessarily down to Keir Starmer, although I do think he has handled things well and he has treated the government with civility and, you know, he's given them constructive criticism, like Will said, but I don't think that it's necessarily down to his leadership that they've gone up in the polls because they're automatically going to because they're not the party who's going to have a reputation yeah i think that's I in th a certain way yeah sorry you broke up a little bit there at the end but that's absolutely fine the, i mean i think the reality is that lots of conservative supporters and lots of people who voted for boris johnson are giving him and them quite a lot of not credit but giving them quite a lot of sympathy if you like quite a lot of understanding for the fact it's not a problem of their creation is it it's clearly it's right up there in the category of events, dear boy events, isn't it? In terms of things you wouldn't expect to happen and things you wouldn't necessarily want to have to cope with. 
the one thing that I've picked up in class quite often is, is the fact that this crisis has been almost the perfect test case for devolution, which is to say that of the devolved matters that it concerns, health, education and transport, it's basically the perfect storm, isn't it? Because those are the things that are most closely associated with dealing with it. Um, I wonder, Will, because obviously this is something that affects Labour's chances of winning a majority at the next election at all. Given how well Nicola Sturgeon is perceived to have handled this, presumably Scottish independence becomes more likely, presumably SNP mm. winning the next election in Scotland looks very likely, makes it difficult for Labour, doesn't it, at the moment? Yeah, well, I definitely think the coronavirus crisis has helped and supported the case of independence in um, Scotland. Polls in Scotland have Nicola Sturgeon quite favor like high favourable. Um, they think she's handled the crisis well. Um, deaths are actually low in Scotland. Testing's much more effective. Over eighty percent to one hundred people, eighty percent to one hundred percent. So people can get tests in a day. Unlike in England, I, I think same in Wales. Um, the Welsh Labour government under Mark has also um, handled the crisis a lot better than Boris Johnson. I think hopefully that will show off in the polls next May. I just wonder who, who we'll just go around on this and just maybe finish off with this. In the UK, as much as this is possibly a distasteful question, which politicians would you say have had a good pandemic, if any? Daisy? I honestly don't think that any of them have, because I think no matter what your position is in Parliament or in the government, it's the pandemic will have made your job. It's made everybody's jobs harder it's made teachers jobs harder it's made lawyers jobs harder doctors etc so I don't think that I mean I'm sure there are some that have done better than others but I think in general just the whole of parliament has been affected by it like only certain numbers being able to go into the commons etc so I don't think anybody has had a good pandemic but I think people who are in the cabinet and in the shadow cabinet have been particularly poorly affected. Mark Drakeford, um, First Minister of Wales, has come out of it quite well. His approval ratings have been on the up during the crisis. Welsh Labour looks like might just cling or just get a majority next year's Senate elections. So I think Mark Drakeford. In my opinion, I don't, I don't have any love for the Labour Party's criticism of Tory policies and then criticism of them changing it. Um, it seems counterintuitive, so no, I haven't got any more support for Labour. I don't think the Conservative Party have dealt with the pandemic in a way that I would have liked. And as far as, you know, the, the Parliament in the UK is concerned, those are the only two political entities these days, uh, much to Will Dawson's chagrin. But I'm sure we'll keep that in. That'll, that'll get a smile. I think, I mean, in terms of where it fits into our course, obviously, electoral politics and voting behaviour and things like that will will reference it when we come to an election finally and obviously will just mentioned the senate elections for next year there's mayoral elections around the country very soon as well um in addition to which obviously the question of government competence and prime ministerial competence and ministerial competence and such like is obviously to the fore in that respect isn't it um, and we haven't even touched upon it and frankly it's perhaps too detailed to get involved in at this stage the extent to which the government has been able to use power to make changes to the national lockdown situation without having to pass legislation and basically using uh, a mixture of existing powers and statutory instruments and such like is something that's starting to get some attention. And we maybe come back to that at some later date because it's a big deal, obviously. Right, we'll move on to the United States. I think um, lots, of, lots of other podcasts and journalists and whoever else has paid a lot of attention to this. It's only right that they should do so, obviously. 
uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away on the 18th of September this year, just a couple of days ago. Um, and almost before anybody's got time to mark her passing and to mourn or to even celebrate her life, we, we're basically faced with a battle royale to to replace her on the Supreme Court. And it it seems that that is going to play out really very quickly uh, and really very controversially going forward. So I wonder, I mean, it's it's not really the place of this discussion to, to mark her life, but it is obviously this, the case that she is a, you know, an absolute titan of the law and an absolute uh, defender of women's rights and liberal uh, values in the United States and, and, a, and a hero to many, uh, quite rightly, I would think. I don't suppose anybody would disagree with any of that. Question is, though, um, we'll start with um, Will, if we can. Should President Trump seek to replace her before the presidential election and indeed before um, the inaugural address in January of 2021? Well, I think it comes down to principles, really. Obviously, in the last year of Obama's presidency in 2016, when a Supreme Court vacancy appeared, the Republican House and Senate, sorry, blocked his appointment. So I think if the Republicans now approve Trump's appointment with less than 50 days of the election, when Obama had over six months left, I think it's just going to look overly hypocritical. But there again, it doesn't look like the Republican Party had many principles anyway. So, Spoken by a a true leftist, and that's absolutely fine. I mean, I suppose the difference is, if there is one, (laughs) that Obama was coming to the end of his term full stop. And he's obviously come to the end of his eight years, albeit with a year to go, more or less, when Merrick Garland was, was... nominated trump is clearly as you say 50 or so days away from the presidential election and you know obviously the the new the new congress will be sworn in i think on the 3rd of january 2021 so it's it's coming around pretty quickly um given they have the numbers will do you not expect the senate to push it through i mean presumably well go for it well do they have the numbers though because obviously more moderate republicans i think a republican from maine um, who depends on them liberal votes has came out and said she's a bit iffy whether she's going to vote it through. Yeah. I think other the remaining moderate Republicans might just think should I do this should I not will it impact me electorally? So I'm not sure if the numbers will, but obviously if it's a tie, Mike Pence will have to cast adding vote. Mm-hmm. So we will have to see how it plays out. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that Mr. Pence will cast the deciding <laughs> vote in favour of Trump's uh, nomination. Uh, yeah, Susan Collins in Maine has been pretty much the one go-to block on anything that Trump might attempt. So I guess that's that's a given. Uh, one or two others, not quite so clear. I think Mitt Romney's come out today to say that he would give a fair hearing to whoever is nominated and would judge them on their merits. So he hasn't said a blanket no, which basically gives the Republicans the numbers in the Senate for this. Uh, what do you think, Carvey? Uh, is, is it right for Trump and the Republicans to push on with a nomination or do you think they should hold fire for now? Uh, I don't think... Well, I think one of the advantages that... Uh, having a constitution as rigid and codified as as the US has is that you don't have to worry so much about um, being principled or or worrying about, you know, what is right and what is not right, because you'll be kept in line by, you know, first of all, the Supreme Court, but also there's a clear rule book there. And, you know, you can only contort that so much. So you don't have to worry about distorting the politics of the United States because, it, you know, you can distort it for maybe 10 years and then it'll come back in line because of the constitution that's been written down and people will, you know, come back to saying this is this is what the constitution says and you can't change conventions in the same way that you can in the UK in, in the way that, you know, John Burko arguably did. So you're quite right. The president has the right to nominate. 
the Senate Judiciary Committee has the right to hear said nomination. And if that nomination is to proceed, they will give it to the, the full Senate uh, to, to confirm that. What do you think, Daisy? What's the right thing to do? And what do you think will happen? It's difficult because it's not like somebody on the Supreme Court has resigned or stepped down or, you know, been fired. It's like um, it is somebody who has passed away. So I think there needs to be a proper level of respect there, particularly because RBG was such like um, kind of a figurehead of all the things that she stood for. So I think that there should there should be a longer period, I think, where people pay respects to her before I was Trump, then I would be that I would be wanting to put through a conservative judge before the election because that means even if he loses he still had some sort of lasting you know most abiding kind of impact that a president can have is actually in terms of their impact on the on the judiciary because of course with a lifelong appointment even if you serve eight years it's nothing by comparison to appointing somebody at the age of 30 40 years of age who might serve for mm. 30 or 40 years themselves uh, i mean talk is of amy coney Bar Barrett, sorry, I misspoke. Amy yeah. Coney Barrett, uh, and she's—I mean, she's a she's a darling of the conservative religious right. Um, she is generally reckoned, obviously, to be a conservative justice in the making. She is somebody who Trump is on record as having said he was saving for Ginsburg, which basically means that when Ginsburg passed, he would look to her. It, she, she ran. Kavanaugh very very close in 2018 when when Kavanaugh was was appointed I think Barrett was on the list of potential appointees so or nominees so it's uh, it's quite likely that she might be the one called in which would which would give the Republicans if you like or at least the Conservatives a 6-3 win on the court which is which is really mm. significant looking forward isn't it in terms of the sorts of cases that might come before the court so I guess my question to you is really Given that gamble, I mean, do you, do you gamble? Does Trump gamble? Do the Republicans gamble with potentially losing the election by ramming this through, but at the same time winning a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court? What do you think to that, Harvey? I mean, that seems a bold, a bold gamble, frankly, but maybe one worth taking. Well, the Republicans control the Senate at the moment, which means that as far as the, the Congress is concerned, they can probably ram this through. And, you know, if you're going to vote for Trump anyway, I'm not sure you'd care. And if you're going to be opposed to Trump, I'm not sure it would, you know, make you hate him. If Trump acts in a way that, you know, Will has quite rightly pointed out, is going to anger Democrats and liberals equally in the United States. I mean, it's clearly something that might wind up the Democratic base to the extent that they want to do something about it and vote against Trump in November. So it's, it's, I mean, it's a risk. You can say that, but like, I don't think it's possible for a lot of them to get any more riled up, given they've had four years of a president who arguably has gone against so many things that Democrats and liberals stand for. I think if you if you would say that you, you know, you're affiliated with the Democrat Party or you are liberal politically, I don't think Trump doing one more potentially outrageous thing is going to adjust people's stance on him because people who support him really support him and the people who hate him really hate him and they already think that he's done so I think him doing this one nomination is really going to change many people's opinions yeah i think as harvey pointed out this would actually be doing things by the rule book this would be 
using his constitutional powers to nominate, getting the confirmation through the Senate Judiciary Committee and getting the Senate to ratify that whole sort of process. So it's uh, it's by the book, isn't it, really? And I can't see, frankly, uh, the Republicans missing this trick. Um, and in some ways, doing it before the election makes much more sense than waiting for the election, because, of course, as soon as the election is held, Trump no longer, if he loses, Trump no longer has the electoral mandate that he would need to justify it. There will be several members of the Senate who would no longer have their seats and therefore wouldn't have the authority to do the same, even though they still could. There's nothing to stop them doing it. But a lame duck appointment in that period would be more difficult. Um, it's worth noting, and this is perhaps getting, getting beyond what we need to discuss at this point, the, the Supreme Court, in terms of admitting cases for consideration, operates on a rule of four, which is to say that four of the justices need to, to consider something worthy of hearing for it to even make... Um, make the sort of caseload, um, the docket, if you will. So they hear about 100 to 150 cases a year out of the 7,000 that come before them. But for each of those, there needs to be four members of the Supreme Court who agree to hear that case, or at least agree to, to admit it, if you like. And if the, if the liberal or left or Democrat-leaning justices, there are only three of them going forward, that makes things very difficult for them indeed. It's not, not easy. In terms of the US Supreme Court, clearly presidential power uh, the appointment process, the idea of um, patronage, obviously the role of the Senate in particular in in accepting nominations and confirming nominations from the president, um, the votes to confirm a Senate uh, nomination process, etc. So we are looking very likely at a court that is six to three conservative to liberal uh, in terms of the balance. I don't think I don't think even if it is Amy Coney Barrett, she would be the most right-leaning of the justices, I think. Um, so it's still going to be a, a, a remarkable shift from when Trump came to office. Obviously, having three picks for the Supreme Court is very rare, especially in the first term. So with that in mind, we'll, we'll finish there. Right, so I'm joined this afternoon by Charlotte, Phoebe and Vicky, all of whom studied politics at Aquinas College in the last few years. Uh, they've all gone on to university to study politics related courses. So hopefully they will have something to say about how and why that happened. Um, it's very good of them to give their time. So we're very grateful for that. And obviously, uh, as many students as can be involved in this in future, the better. That would be great to hear from people. Um, first thing I'm going to ask all of you to do, if you wouldn't mind, is just Tell me your name um, and where and what you're studying. Uh, and then we'll get into how you chose that course and the university and such like. But first of all, what's your name? Where are you and what are you doing? Hi, I'm Charlotte. Um, I study at the University of Leeds and I'm doing a joint honours degree in English and sociology. Uh, hi, um, I'm Phoebe. I'm um, a third year politics student at the University of Liverpool. Uh, hi, I'm Vicky. Uh, I'm a second year politics student at the University of Liverpool. Um, if I could just ask each of you how you came to choose the course in the university you did, uh, and you can be as detailed or otherwise as you'd like to be. So Charlotte, first of all, if you would, please. I wanted to move away out of Manchester, but I didn't want to go anywhere that was too far. Um, and I wanted somewhere that felt similar to Manchester. So that definitely played a part in my decision. Um, in terms of the course, I had a look at like what the mod like the modules actually offered me, and whether they had modules I'd specifically be interested in. 
rather than the course necessarily as a whole if that makes sense yeah it makes perfect sense did did you visit Leeds a few times before you went had you been to open days and things um I visited once as um I think it was like an offer holder day and yeah that as well really like I knew I'd made the right choice when I went there because it was just so like welcoming Phoebe how did you end up studying politics at Liverpool? Well, it's uh, sort of similar to what Charlotte said. Um, I wanted to go somewhere that was away from Manchester to gain a sense of independence and living on my own, because I think that's quite important at this age. But I also didn't want to go anywhere that was too far that I couldn't get home if it was needed. Liverpool was actually my insurance choice. I missed out on Leeds by about three marks in in one of my A-levels. But I put it down as an insurance choice because it was such like a well-constructed course that I felt that when I went to the open days like it offered enough flexibility that you could sort of specialise when you got to the second and third years in where you wanted where you wanted to but also in first year it gave you a really good grounding. That's good to hear and I I know Vicky's story is similar in some ways. (laughs) Vicky how, how did you end up at Liverpool? Uh, Liverpool was also my insurance choice. Politics, I didn't originally choose to do politics either. Um, I originally <laughs> wanted to go to Warwick and do English, um, but then slowly after I sent in my applications and stuff, I slowly started to realise, although I didn't really admit it to myself, that I might have chosen the wrong choice with doing English. And then that was definitely confirmed on results day. But luckily, um, Liverpool was my insurance choice anyway. And then uh, they offered me a politics course and it's probably the best uh, mistake, mistake, if you will, um, that's probably ever happened because I'm really happy at Liverpool doing politics, yeah. Um, How did studying politics at A-level help you uh, with the choice you made in terms of your university or did it help you with getting a place or how has it helped you? Now that you've started there, what, what have you gained from studying politics at A-level that, that's been useful to you? Uh, we'll start with Charlotte again if we can. What I would say is that I found that politics is always going to be relevant. Like It's always going to intersect with other disciplines, other subjects. Um, and so it, I, I found that studying politics at A-level actually provided me with like a good foundation of knowledge that I could apply to like sociology I could apply to English and generally inside and outside education I found it really useful like it's definitely put me at an advantage where like say um because I do both essay-based subjects and I get lots of reading lists there'll be books on there that I recognise from A-level and it puts me at an advantage in that sense. Um, Well I sort of feel that with politics my other two A-levels are history and law and I sort of feel like all three of them have overlapping qualities to them and I would have loved to do history or law at university but I felt like politics was my strongest point and uh, it's something that I feel very passionately about so I wanted to have a degree that I really enjoyed studying and also it was something that was quite familiar and I cared about it. Um, so when I got to university, I was thinking, oh, you know, um, 
maybe it might be a bit more advanced than what I thought, but I think they quite anticipate that not everyone studied politics at A-level. So it gives you a really good grounding. But I also felt like my previous experience with A-level politics really just gave me the ability to look into things a bit more critically or a bit deeper than maybe someone who hadn't studied politics before. Vicky, how do you, I mean, obviously you've, you've gone around the houses a bit in terms of arriving on a politics course, but um, how, how did your politics studies at Aquinas help you in your studies and your choices at university? Um, well, I think towards the end in upper sixth, it really helped me start to change my mind about my course choice. Um, especially when we started doing, you know, the paper three studies of ideologies. Yeah, yeah. Um, it really made me realise that, oh, I actually am really interested in this and I actually really want to further study this. And it kind of made me go, oh, I'm actually really interested and I want to learn more. And, um, you know, it gives you a good idea of, because I think it's really important to choose a course that you are actually interested in at uni. Studying politics at A-level kind of gives you that grounding of, am I actually interested in this? Because there is a risk if you don't study it beforehand and you get to uni and you've never studied it before, there is a very big chance that you won't like what you're doing. Right, I know you've all got a good answer to this, I'm pretty sure. Um, have you remained politically engaged since you left college? And if you have... What have you been up to? Uh, we'll start with Charlotte again, if we can. I voted for the first time in December um, in a general election. Um, I just, I still felt like I still follow the news. I still, you know, I use my Twitter feed as like a source of information. I watch things like Question Time. Um, and like recently I've done like, some canvassing in like around the local area on behalf of a friend um which is something that I wouldn't have had the confidence to do like two or three years ago um so the answer is yes and like there's lots of societies at university as well which help you get involved and do that as well if I'm right in saying your your dissertation is pretty politically motivated as well isn't it in terms of the position it's taking and the research you're doing what what, what is it you putting together for that yeah so um i'm hoping to do my dissertation on kind of the relationship between race and identity um and looking at like british the idea of what it means to be british ideas of nationalism patriotism and what that means for specifically black people black british people and a lot of that draws on knowledge that I gained at A-level. Um, the you know, theories, ideologies that I studied at A-level. So it's really helpful to already have that knowledge because it helps my research. Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't be doing that at a better time and a more, a more necessary time, I don't think. Uh, Phoebe, yeah. what, what have you been up to? Uh, yeah, so staying politically involved. Um, obviously, first time voting in a general election in December, although it didn't quite go as planned um <laughs> unfortunately uh yeah and um, just keeping up to date with the news i was also the social media secretary for the liverpool feminist society um and we got nominated for activists of the year um which we narrowly missed out on but <laughs> it was still an amazing experience 
and yeah just getting involved with like political um events that the guild puts on so for example we had a general election night um, for the December election. Did you all vote in at your university um, constituency or did you vote at home as it were? What, what was your choice, uh, Charlotte? Did you vote at home or in Stockport or in Leeds? Um, I voted in Leeds because uh, that's where I was at the time. Yeah, okay. Phoebe? Uh, I voted back home, so I travelled back home because um, I just wanted to to feel like I was voting for my constituency. Yeah. And also where I live now and back home are both quite strong labour holds, so it didn't really matter where I where I voted, but I decided to vote at home. And Vicky? Um, I voted at home because uh, Liverpool's obviously a very safe labour seat and where I live, um, it's kind of like a marginal between uh, Lib Dem and Conservative. So I just thought my vote mattered more at home. Um, it's always an interesting thought for students. I, I think lots of students don't realise they have this option in terms of voting in their the constituency they live before they went to university and the, the constituency they end up in at university. And, and that question, Vicky, about which seat your vote counts more in is really relevant, isn't it, in terms of how marginal the seat might be? <laughs> what would you say I mean, this is probably not something that you've very often thought about but if you had to offer one piece of advice to students currently thinking about applying to university or going through the UCAS process or indeed thinking about university or not what 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 would you say to them in terms of what they should you know really think about doing or or preparing for uh, Charlotte first of all I would say to just take your time I think there's often a pressure to know straight away where you, where you want to go and what you want to do um but like what we've seen from what the three of us have said you know we didn't end up at the places we thought we were going to I switched to a joint honours and I you know I didn't stick with my original plans um I just say like don't feel pressured into doing a course that you don't want to do um don't feel pressured to like accept an unconditional offer just because you have one or take a gap year if that's what you want to do get some work experience like there's no pressure to do anything and just like to take advantage of what help there is any advice Phoebe what would you what would you have people do if you could get them to do one or a few things um I'd, I'd say more or less the same just just take your time it's it's always going to work out in the end and also I think there's a lot of pressure for people to feel like they have to get into like a Russell group or something like that but you know any university is a good university um I'd say that you know a university sort of what you put into it is, is what you get out of it as well make sure you know all your options you know really consider if university is like the best thing for you and always know that there's always like a plan b if it's needed Vicky, what what what, what what advice would you offer? Um, I would say make sure you research like your courses as much as possible because just because um, with some unis like some unis may not be seen as like prestigious or like happy like have that Russell Group title, but they could have a really good course in something you want to do. So look at the course, not the uni almost, and then 
once you've decided yeah I like this course go obviously it might be difficult now but go to the uni and see if is this a good fit for you since March of this year which seems like a lifetime ago already how, how has the sort of Covid crisis the pandemic and the lockdown and such like affected your university experience my face-to-face teaching my lectures um as the kind of cases rose um they they got phased out very slowly so um it was more focusing on online teaching um having to like kind of step up and do like look at the resources and you know not teach yourself but it's like you have to you don't have the benefit of leaving the house and going to a lecture and just focusing. You have to do it maybe in a house where you've got more distractions. I haven't been in Leeds since March. And so it was working from not only like at home, but from Stockport. Uh, Phoebe, how did, how did Liverpool cope with it for you? It was quite, it was quite odd, really. Sort of looking back on it now feels like a bit like a whirlwind because the, the way that it worked with me is we had industrial strikes up until about oh, yeah. Yeah. early February and then I had my reading week and and then you had a couple of lectures and then the university shut down. So I haven't really been in a lecture since February. <laughs> yeah, me so too. It, yeah, yeah it, it's quite odd because it was a case of, you know, rumours flying about, you know, I... I remember people going, oh, um, so-and-so might, like, might have it or whatever it is. And then people gradually started saying the university might close down. And I was sort of in, in disbelief a little bit. Um, so, yeah, mid-March, I moved home and attempted to do my ex- exams from a little bedroom back in Stockport. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it all unfolded so very, I mean, looking back on it, it all unfolded so very, very fast, but also in some sort of slow motion. It was really strange. Yeah. Um, you know, you, all these rumours going around, schools and colleges are going to shut, they're going to close for a few weeks, we might open after Easter. And then suddenly it was like, I mean, obviously for those of the students who have just finished their A-level courses, you know, the exams were cancelled, all of that, you know, centre-assessed grades and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Which, is, which has been challenging for everybody, obviously. Uh, Vicky, is that is that fairly near to your reflection on what yeah, Liverpool so, had to offer? Yeah, so we had the strikes, then the reading week, and then a couple lectures. And then the way uni did it was they kind of sent out an email at like six o'clock on a Friday. Yeah, it was very odd. <laughs> and, and then they just said, we're going to close for the rest of the year. And it was just quite shocking because um, it was just so... And then it was like, right, okay, move home, get do lectures and seminars online and then do your exams online. And it was all just very bizarre. I found it quite difficult focusing at home as well. Uh, in terms of, I mean, obviously there are questions for those students who are thinking about going to university this year. And I know I've, I've heard from a few who've got real misgivings about going at all and also particular misgivings about the challenges in terms of meeting people and nightlife and just general I guess freshers week and all that sort of stuff it's all up in the air a little bit isn't it 
you lot won't be going to Freshers Week because you're far too old and mature for that sort of behaviour. <laughs> uh, how, how, how has the social side of things been affected and how, how do you expect it to be when you get back if you're not there already, Charlotte? What's, what's, how's things changed in that respect? I'm not in Leeds yet, but I can imagine from what happened in March is that there won't be much going on. There'll be on, like online versions or I know that some places are planning to do like a club experience where there's just tables and you have to stay at your table and stay in a group of six and things like that so I think I think the social life will kind of um, adapt and shift slowly it won't be a conventional freshers um, but I think if you're going into halls of residence then you still have that opportunity hopefully to meet people and um to have some kind of like a social university experience phoebe is, is that i mean are you in liverpool now are you back yeah i, I moved back on about a month ago now right you are How, how's the how's the sort of social thing been thus far and what do you expect it to be i guess i guess we're all going to be home from pubs and restaurants by 10 o'clock as well aren't we so it's a bit of a different thing yeah um it's it's sort of similar um you know places that we used to go which were open quite late are obviously shutting at 10 you have to sit at sit at your tables and and I suppose it must be quite worrying for the freshers that are coming in this year because you know you can only socialize within those that you live with but I think any advice I'd say about that is you know the people that you're with in freshers might not not might not necessarily be the people that you're with for these three whole years um you know you can find friends like quite later on in university or you know they can come out of like situations where you didn't really <laughs> didn't really think that would happen so it might seem quite daunting but at the same time you, you've got three whole years to sort of build you know friendship base or whatever it is in university so I just say might like, be patient and you know just try and make the best of it for what it is at the moment. Um, Vicky how about you you're back in Liverpool now are you? Yeah back in Liverpool um, it's sort of similar things very much like sit, sit at your tables and the people are being quite strict about if you see someone you know in like the pub or something you can't go over and say hi and they're being very strict with it um, but also mm-hmm. I'm the social secretary for dance um, so for this year so it's been quite interesting trying to organize like social events with within societies our um the guild is being quite strict with so most of our socials are going to have to be on like zoom and stuff like that um but we're i'm pushing to have like um even like a social distance like pub thing where you cannot we can, like the because i really want to make sure that the freshers can meet people if you know if they don't get on with their flat very well or something so trying to push for sitting in the sixes in the how in your in your in the pub or something but I don't know whether I'll be able to do that but most of it will probably be on zoom at the moment yeah well I imagine as as with most things if you can make a reasonable proposal that takes into account all the restrictions and and put it yeah. to the authorities they're generally open to ideas because I know, I know for a fact the students unions the guilds the universities themselves they want something to happen because otherwise it's uh it's going to be a fairly soulless experience, isn't it, somehow? What are your plans for after university, if you've got any so far? And what, what are you doing to make them a reality, if you've, if you've thought of anything so far? Charlotte, what have, what have you got in mind? I've been considering maybe continuing 
um, education and doing like a master's in like social and political thought or something along those lines. Um, but obviously, you know, COVID has thrown a massive spanner in the works of many things. So I don't, I'm still not sure on that, on that front. I would still like to go on to do a PGCE um, and do like secondary or sixth form teaching. But again, like I have to gain the work experience, which is something that I probably won't be able to do in the near future. Phoebe, what are your plans? Got to see what happens with um, third year and how learning from uh, home goes. But hopefully after I get this dissertation in and sorted, I'd like to apply to do a master's in international relations. Hopefully at Liverpool, but if not, Manchester or somewhere Vicky, what are your plans? You're obviously just going into your second year, so there's no reason for you to need to know yet, but what, what do you think you might do in future? Um, well, I know I definitely want to go into politics as sort of a career, um, maybe not on the front benches or anything like that, um, more behind the scenes in Westminster. Um, I went I went to London a couple in January, um, and my godparents have been chatting to an MP in the local pub so he said he'd help me out if I ever wanted it. Yeah it's good stuff it doesn't hurt to have those connections. Thanks so much to Charlotte, Phoebe and Vicky for doing that I'm sure you can agree that they brought plenty of good advice to the table in terms of what we should be thinking about both as students and as teachers in terms of the UCAS admissions process. News has moved on again a little bit since we spoke obviously the lockdowns and the Covid situation at universities is becoming more difficult for universities and the government to manage and we shall have to wait and see how that pans out in the next few weeks and months. I was joined by George Jones, Labour councillor and University of Salford politics student. I started by asking him how he came to be involved in Labour politics and how he came to stand for election. If, if at a certain event hadn't have happened, I wouldn't have done it. And the event was when I was back in year 11 at, uh, at school, we did a GCSE in citizenship, um, which I think is a completely underrated subject at the moment. If they've had that in there, and I think it really should be uh, much more of the agenda. Um, and that was obviously where you, you get your building blocks for both law and for politics, obviously to pursue that at A level. And I was obviously very lucky that in my year group when I was at school, it was actually made a compulsory subject. Everyone had to do it in year 11. Uh, well, year 10 and year 11 for their GCSE. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And part of the course was, uh, there's a coursework project where you had to be um, a bit of an activist, if you like. You had to run a campaign about your, something you really cared about, uh, something that was really, really passionate about. And you had to do two of them. You had to do one year 10 and one year 11. The year 10 one I did was on mental health, especially adolescent mental health and really pushing out the agenda. And the second one was on um, sort of cuts and, you know, um, not necessarily cuts, but not necessarily getting enough money into education and the education system in in, in England. And, you know, I, that was based on personal circumstances at the time, what, what we were seeing in, our, in, in my own in my own educational setting. Um, and as part of that second course that I did on cuts to education, we uh, organised to meet with Andrew Gwynn, the MP for Denton and Reddish, where obviously I, I, I live and he's my MP. Um, and it was the first time I'd ever met, I'd, I'd ever met him. And it was great to be able to do, but you did a similar kind of interview with him. And we all choose that as part of our coursework work towards the marks. And obviously meeting him was a bit nervous wracking at the time. I don't think I'd ever met anyone who was sort of um, 
any kind of influence. Um, but it was fantastic, and he's, he's you know, he's, he was really inspirational, and his passion for what he was talking about really, really shone through. And you could just have a really, really normal conversation with him, and it was really at that stage where I sort of felt, you know, yeah, I could, I, I'd like to try and do something a bit like what what he's doing. Um, maybe not up to his level, but um, certainly I'd like to do something that that he's doing. So I made the conscious decision after or I didn't actually make a conscious decision because at the time I didn't actually know he could join a political party at my age. Um, it was only through a conversation with Andrew that I found that actually you can join it, I think, 14 in the Labour Party, which I didn't know about. So I made the conscious decision to look at all my options. I mean, I was still, I think at 16, I think you still very are assessing your views about where your views lie in, you know, in terms of different political parties on the political spectrum, exactly what, what you think. Um, and I don't think you ever, well, I certainly didn't think I 100% lie in this exact area and everything I think is within this 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 spectrum. But when, you know, push, uh, push comes to shove, I, I, I certainly felt that I was to the left, uh, to the centre left, if you like, and my views definitely fell there uh, in terms of what I thought and what I felt and um, what, how I thought the world needed to progress, if you like. Uh, so I did make the conscious decision at that time to, to join the Labour Party. Um, and it was great because from that point, I was very conscious that I wanted to get involved. Um, and when they send you your stuff when you first join the Labour Party, they send you a lot, a lot of information, um, with it, including a contact. I was very keen to get in touch with that contact uh, to start attending what they call the constituency Labour Party meetings, which is the whole constituency, and your branch Labour meetings, which are the individual council wards. They're based on... Uh, individual council wards. So I'm Denton West, uh, which is a, a council ward on Tameside Council. Um, and I was very much got involved very quickly with my local branch. I think just after, uh, it might have been while I was at college actually, in my last year of college, I became a chair of the branch um, quite quickly. That sort of happened. Um, I sort of saw through a transition we were moving in our local party from um, a, a certain structure to another structure. And I'm sort of pretty much overseeing that, making sure that we were following the correct rules and the guidance, because obviously if we're not, then questions start to be raised. So that was really, really important. And it sort of went from there. I picked up other roles. I picked up a role within the constituency parties, the youth officer, and I'll do that jointly with uh, uh, someone else who's very politically active from Aquinas, um, Holly McCormack. You might, you, some of you might have heard of her. Um, I still do that role jointly with her. I took on another role uh, in the local campaigns forum. Uh, which is the borough-wide uh, group that oversees Labour campaigns within uh, Tameside. I'm sure Stockport will have one, uh, Manchester will have one, and that's the way that worked. Um, so again, I took on all these different roles, so eventually got to the point where the next um, step, if you like, was was to seek um, elected office and to become a councillor. But of course, that doesn't just happen overnight. That had to... Um, that, 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 you had to really, really think about that, because it, it does have, whether you like it or not, it, it does have a lot of knock-on effects. Obviously, uh, I you remember I spoke to you when I was at Aquinas about I'm going to have to make a very conscious decision and I go on about where I go and what I do next because if I really want to progress this further, um, I'm not, I, I've got to accept I'm not necessarily going to have the full student experience, if you like, by moving out, living in halls, uh, making loads and loads of different people, meeting loads and loads of different people. Um, and in the end, for my first year, I did actually manage to do both, not move out, but to, through other friends, live that experience and do my council work. So in the end, it did all work out for me. Um, but the actual process of becoming a council just seemed the next 
step, if you like. And of course, that's all circumstances. You can't just walk into it. There has to be a vacant seat. Um, people have to want you to do it. Uh, you have to get a lot of support. There is actually a very long-winded process in the Labour Party to do it. Um, and at each stage, uh, no, I remember speaking to myself throughout each stage, I said, there's going to be something here that's going to come up that says you can't do it or, or whatever. Um, but I did and I made it through and obviously I am where I am now. But that was, a, you know, I say a long-winded process and it just felt the next natural step, if you like, that that's what I wanted to go on to do. And uh, I certainly don't regret it. I can tell no, you it that. It doesn't sound like it. I'm, I, you know, I was conscious not to interrupt you as you were going because there's, there's lots in there. In terms of you getting the nomination and then the later selection and election as councillor for your ward, um, I mean, briefly, what, what, what is the process in terms of if somebody wants to do it? Uh, you've obviously talked about the level of engagement and activism you were involved in. So you, you had a massive head start in that sort of sense. So I'm presuming you just, you'd have to be 18. You presumably have to be a member of the local party and such like. But beyond that, what is what is required in terms of actually getting selected as a council candidate? For Labour, the way it works is you obviously have to come to the decision yourself that that's what you want to do. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bit like a job, if you like. You put in forward an application form. It's quite a lengthy application form. It includes a personal statement. Um, and that personal statement is quite important because that is what the local parties will see um, when if you are approved. That is the thing they go off to whether they will invite you to uh, to like a mini hustings if you like, or whether they will uh, or, or, or whether they don't. Um, it's quite that simple. But before you even get to that point, you know it goes through your application stage, put through your application to as before the local campaign forum or the LCF. Uh, that's a panel of. Um, members and councillors that's been selected by their branches within the Labour Party and they sit on that to run local campaigns and to select the candidates. So they come together and they see they look through all the applications that come through. There's usually a couple of weeks, I think, um, usually after the May local elections when that opens to start looking for the obviously to fill vacancies for the next year if it's a fallow year, then you get a bit longer to campaign. So you do that, you go for the application stage, they all meet, they all get together and they decide um whether you meet the criteria, have to be 18 at the time of the election. So I put my application in. They, I was obviously approved that I would meet the requirements. Um, there's, other, there's other requirements. You have to live within the borough, um, or you have to work within the borough that you want to represent. Uh, they all get together and decide, as I say, whether you meet that requirement or not. They will then invite you to interview. Um, if you get through an interview stage, they then have another sort of meeting. Um, and the interview, I should just say at that point, the interview is a uh, very, very, um, very searching questions, I'd say, about what, what it is you believe, what it is that you want to do, what it is that you want to go on to do, uh, where you see it going, uh, your whole sort of vision and philosophy, the purpose of why you want to do it. It's all them kind of questions. And the interview was done very well. The interview includes um, members of our own local campaigns forum, but also members from other local campaigns forum to for a matter of fairness, they then if you get through the interview stage, you then have another look. You have to go through um, a campaign report. So to stand, your local branch secretary will be asked to produce a campaign report based on what you've done. You have to be active, knocking on doors, leafleting, um, doing all that kind of stuff. You have to be active across the board, standing in a number of seats, whether that be... Uh... So then at that point, all the different branches uh, that are renominating their candidates for the upcoming elections, the local elections, that's usually done around October, November time, because obviously you need enough time between your selection 
and the May election to really get your name out in your community and to really campaign as hard as you can to obviously win that seat, especially if you're a new name, especially that time's really, really precious to you. I got on the panel and in my first year I went for, I was selected for one seat, a local party got together, looked at my nomination form and shortlisted me to come forward. I went there and I think I lost out by a couple of votes to a guy who I'm very great friends with now actually, he was in the neighbouring ward to me, uh, Denton South at the time, he was absolutely fantastic. Um, he actually, I think, lived in the ward or lives around the ward as Shanley lives in the ward. And he's, he's a great cat. He was obviously the best person for the job, and I, I, I quite happily say that. And obviously, I wouldn't have what I have now in my own home ward if I hadn't got that. Um, but my situation was very different, if you want me to speak from personal uh, personal perspective. I was in a by-election at the 2019 general election on the same day um, because the person who had my seat that I have now was unfortunately standing down for family commitments. So I had just been selected for May 2020, which obviously didn't happen uh, back in the September for my ward of Denton West. Um, so I was actually selected this this time round, um, but obviously I didn't I didn't have that much time because I ended up um, standing in the election in December as the as, as in a by election for Denton West. And I found that out I think the very first week in November. So I had just six weeks I think to uh, really get a campaign together. And of course it was all caught up with the general election. So all my campaign materials had to be joint between myself and uh, Andrew at the time, who was standing again to be the Denton Reddish parliamentary candidate. So that it all happened, to be honest, quite quickly for me and when, when I was um, elected. And um, it, it, it was a really prescient time, especially, I'm not going to go into it, but where the Labour Party was at the time, um, I thought would really quite undermine me and where I was, where I was at, especially as a new candidate with such a short amount of time. But I didn't, and I still came out with like a nine hundred and twenty odd majority, which is pretty good given the circumstances. Yeah, lo- locally that's well worth having, isn't it? Good stuff. You've talked about lots of things you've been involved in. I mean, what, if you wanted to talk about one area that you were you were focused on or passionate about, George, what what would you be saying is your sort of key area of activism or your key commitment at the moment? Would you think this has come about actually much of a surprise between? And I was saying this actually to Andrew not long ago when we were working on sort of a joint issue that's gone on in my ward at the moment. Um, Something that I didn't expect to be my, my, my sort of thing. And I was saying to him actually the other day, I think everyone has a go-to thing that they get really get rallied up about and get really quite passionate about and want to see real change in. And obviously there's so many subjects you can take up in the world, but the one that's sort of come my way is transport and public transport um, and about how we really create, especially in Greater Manchester, that London-style system for transport. Um, I mean, we've currently got an issue in my ward in between it with issues with bus services. Um, and myself and Andrew and uh, Councillor Brenda Warrington, who's the leader of Tameside Council, and also my ward colleague, um, as well as Councillor Mike Smith, who's my other ward colleague, we worked incredibly hard against some decisions that were being made by a bus operator, who I won't name, but uh, who were going to cut a service in my ward um, from our town centre. So Ding Bank um, is part of my ward, um, which is part of Denton West, and it actually sits just outside Denton Town Centre. So it's just, we wouldn't have a public transport link basically between Dane, the Dane Bank estate area and our town centre, which is, um, in my view, incredibly, um, it's just, it's not, well, it's not fair and it's, it, it's just not right. I think no part of a town should ever be cut off from its town centre. That's where all your vital services are. It's where our dental surgeries, our doctor's surgery is, uh, the post-sorting office. We've just had a, I think it's £15 million new leisure development. 
there. We've got all our shops there and supermarkets. It's 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 the hub of our community, like it's the hub of our town, uh, and no part of it should be cut off from public transport. Um, but unfortunately, at the current moment, um, we are, and we're working incredibly, incredibly hard to change that. Um, but as a bus user and someone who uses the buses and is very conscious about uh, public transport, not just public transport, but we've also got a big focus on walking and cycling in Great Manchester as well, about how we uh, really, really, really move the system into what London has. Because obviously London in our country is sort of the world leader. I think it's probably the world leader across the world, really, isn't it? London, very much integrated, very much for our country. It's very much um, the mode that everyone wants to have and the model everyone wants to have. And that's what that's what I... I'm absolutely passionate about that getting a transport system that is integrated, that's accessible, that's affordable, and that runs to where we want it to go, and that is of high standards. I mean, we don't have uh, the Metrolink network where I am. Um, to be able, we do have a train that comes to Reddish North Station, but it's not really accessible. The Denton Station and the Denton line where I am is a closed line. It's a parliamentary service, um, so that doesn't exist. So the only real option we have uh, in terms of public transport usage is the bus network and if that's being cut um i believe firmly that we are much more disadvantaged in other areas um so i'm not gonna i'm obviously not letting it lie and working as hard as i can with uh, andrew gwynn as dmv and my award colleagues brenda and mike to make that point absolutely crystal clear that we will not stand for that and we work as hard as we can obviously it's difficult because we don't have necessary powers at this moment in time to do anything necessary about it but we're working with transport for greater manchester to look at all the options um and that's literally this is where my whole passion for transport has come from and passion to transport because i we're nowhere near up to scratch um to where we need to be and we really need to work on it but uh if anyone's interested my twitter feed is full of transport things at the moment so you know have a look. Yeah, I mean, uh, going back to that idea that obviously you know the responsibilities of both local councils and and Greater Manchester Council, in this case, for providing integrated public transport settlements and solutions is is hugely important. And, and you know, you, I, I remember banging on about it in class and talking about how, you know, for the Labour Party, especially getting people to not only understand, but to support the provision of bus services and such like is, is hugely important. Because actually, in terms of the numbers of people who use public transport locally, the vast majority are using buses. Uh, and, and as you say, they can have such a devastating impact in terms of breaking the links between different parts of different towns and cities and stuff so no, well done for that and well done for picking an a, a, a sort of area of activism that might not be quite so uh, exciting in inverted commas but is actually absolutely essential so well done for that um final thing george thanks so much for for joining us with this because it's um it's obviously taken some of your day out and uh, it's a detailed thing we've gone through um in terms of anybody else at college, i mean whether it's at college or whether they're just young people and and thinking about it, what what would you say in terms of, you know, I don't know about whether they want to be councillors or not, but in terms of their political activism, what 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 advice would you give people in terms of getting stuck into party politics or or any other route? My my biggest advice and my biggest sort of um, well, in fact, the way I only see it, the only way you can be involved is to get involved. Um, if you want to have your say, you want to be heard, you want a platform to express your views but also to listen to other people's views and i think sometimes that's very much underestimated in the political world is listening i mean the value of listening is incredibly important i mean to add to what other people say and and, and listen to the, their opinions 
it's incredibly important for understanding and expressing your own views. Um, so, my, but my, you know, my overarching advice would be just get involved, wherever it is, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, or or non, or whatever organisation, whether it would be, whether it be a pressure group or uh, other kind of organisation, just get involved. And our political system and our democracy really does entail people to get involved and to stand for election and to put themselves forward as a candidate. So I would always say that young people do have um, that responsibility to come forward if they want to have their their views heard in the, 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 the rooms where the decisions are being made. You do have to put yourself forward. You do have to sort of rise above some of the negativity and put yourself forward to sit in those rooms where decisions are being made. Get involved, get active, but also remember, be respectful. Um, politics can be a very dirty place sometimes in terms of being a bit of a slinging match between um, making things, everything, everything's personal. Um, I've always tried to stay out of that as best as I can because I, I don't want to get in that. And I think everyone in politics, no matter what party, I like to think, and I'm sure this may come across a bit naive to some people, I like to think that everyone who's involved in politics wants to do it for the right reasons. Everyone wants to make a difference. They've put their views on how we do that and how we get to where we want to be. Um, is different um, but I, my overarching message is get involved, be respectful listen but ultimately our democracy depends on people standing forward and uh, putting themselves forward for election and if young people want to be heard that is the very best way to do it, being in the room where the decisions are being made. Yeah, great stuff, thank you for that I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, just just for anybody listening, I didn't prompt George to say any of that, that's all, all from him but it's absolutely our message in terms of if Aquinas Citizens is going to be anything as a campaign group or as a, a volunteering organisation, it's basically to make people realise that, but you know, obviously voting, getting involved in decision making, being active and all the rest of it is is massively important. There's absolutely no point sitting uh, wherever you might choose to sit and just moaning about stuff unless you're prepared to get stuck in and do something. And George is a, a perfect example of somebody who's not only at a very young age found an interest in politics and activism, but has done something about it. He's joined his local party. He's been on all sorts of campaigning groups. He's obviously pushing for local issues that are massively important to large numbers of people. Um, and he's obviously, as he's just demonstrated, enormously well-informed as to how to go about doing these things. So thank you very much, George, for your time. I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, obviously, you're our first guest on our first podcast. So thank you. Thank you for being that. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, we'll, we'll tap up Andrew <laughs> Gwynn you. at some point in the future, but not yet. We'll, we've, got a few, we've got a few more oh. Aquinas types to work. As we move through the year, this podcast will become ever more the property of students who attend the Aquinas Citizens Enrichment Group here at college, so expect a student-led agenda made by and for politically engaged young people. I hope you'll find time to listen to their work. The podcast is put together using Anchor, so it may be best listened to there, but it's also available wherever you usually get your podcasts. Not yet on BBC Sounds or iPlayer. See you next time. There's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the driver